0: Uh, let's uh, pray just before we uh, dive into God's work. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious and eternal God, we um, have just sung some of the most incredible truths. We have just reflected upon some of the, the greatest realities to ever uh, bear on humankind. That the eternal God, the glorious and everlasting one, would take on human flesh in order to live and to suffer and to die for sinful human beings. Uh, Lord, this is the reason for the season that your son came to live and to die and to rise again in the place of sinners. Uh, Lord God, we pray that as we reflect on uh, your written word, uh, that you would show us by your spirit the internal incarnate word who came to save your people and that we would worship together him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I uh, recently watched Uh, a film a few days ago actually called Ghost in the Shell. Uh, Set in the not so distant future, uh, technology is developed uh, to such an extent where human and cyborg can finally be brought into unison. And the protagonist, Scarlett Johansson, uh, AKA Major, or Project 1571, is the first successful merger of AI and humanity. A fully human brain and a truly artificial and extremely powerful body. She truly is a specimen like no other, and that is why her owners use her as an advanced weapon. Throughout the film, though, she is regularly faced with the question that she tries to bury. Who or what am I? You see, she looks entirely human, and she has a true human brain. They call it her ghost. But she's not fully human. She's she's the absolute latest in weapon tech, AI, and robotics, but she's not fully and truly a robot. Switches it. The film ends uh, by describing her as unique, one of a kind, but then they say, "But more will follow. More like her will follow." You know, we live in a culture awash with like entertainment and legend and sci-fi and fantasy, and we we come across various types of these blends, don't we? Whether it's our action heroes like Spider-Man, who is a mix of of human and radioactive spider, or Hercules, who is like half man and and half God. And if we're not careful, we can import some of these entertaining and great yet fictional ideas into our Christian theology. Thankfully, we have the Bible to reveal to us the truth, and we have the history of the church to guard us against error. And today, we're gonna think about Jesus Christ, the one who is both God, truly, fully, and the one who is both human, fully. Not a blend, not a mix, not part this and part that, but truly and completely God and really and fully human. And it's glorious. We're going to look at this under two notes, uh, two headings if you're taking notes. The godness of the word, verses one to four. The godness of the word. Introductions matter. Think about receiving a letter or an email. The opening shapes your perspective on the rest of the document, right? I regret to inform you. Or, congratulations! Or you are immediately summoned. Hopefully, you've not received one of those. Each conveys a distinct meaning. Uh, How does the author of this gospel, this eyewitness account of the life of Jesus by John, how does he choose to open his gospel? It's like this: in the beginning. And he echoes the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. It's the account of the creation of the entire cosmos. Now, many ancient cultures had um, creation accounts. Some begin with like a raging sea or others, uh, the beginning of an egg that cracks. Others, it's two gods fighting to the death and they use their dismembered body parts to form the creation. A bit weird. In our own culture, we have our own account, don't we? It's a cosmic accident. It's chance purposelessness. That's what we're told. Not Genesis. It opens, in the beginning, God created. Nothing before him, nothing else besides him. God, he created the entire universe. The Old Testament is clear and unequivocal. Space and time and matter came into being all at once. At the same time, theologians call it ex nihilo. And so John's opening of his gospel of Jesus echoes Genesis. But there's a difference, right? In the beginning was the word. You might think that sounds strange. Why the word? Well, the New Testament was written in the language of Greek to a Greek-speaking context. And and the word, which it's original is logos, it can be translated different things. Word, reason, message, study. If if you've ever studied biology, that's where the the ology, the study of, comes from. The study of life. Or theology, the study of God. Why, though? Why did God choose? uh, Sorry, why did John choose this word Logos. Well, in Greek thinking, this, this Logos was the rational principle behind everything that existed. Okay? Uh, some Stoics said that there was no other God than Logos. And they don't mean a personal, intimate God. They mean reason and logic, the kind of order of the universe. Other Greeks saw this Logos as like a, an, an archetype, an ideal. It was the ideal world that everything else flowed from and was based upon. And so the idea in Greek thinking was that this word is the reason, it's the principle, it's the archetype, it's the, it's the kind of shape of the cosmos for which everything else is derived. But remember, John is writing not from the perspective for first and foremost as a Greek. He's not a Greek. He's a son of Abraham, he's a Jew. And he's seeped in the Old Testament. And so this idea of the word has a rich and varied heritage in the Old Testament. The word was the the agent of creation. He's quoting Genesis 1, remember, and God said, and it happened. And God said, and it happened. Psalm 33, verse 6 says this, it's by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. God's word is the agent of creation. God's word was the agent of salvation. Psalm 107, verse 20 says this, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. The word delivers from the grave. The word is a means of revelation. Right? Jeremiah 1.4, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. This word is an agent of revelation, bringing bringing light and the knowledge of God. And so when John writes, in the beginning was the word, the logos, not only is he nodding to something that the Greeks had kind of identified and spotted in in their blindness, but he's drawing on this absolute rich feast of Old Testament language, the word of God that creates, the word of God that saves, the word of God that reveals. But John goes on, doesn't he? The word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this would have caused an Orthodox Jew to choke on his kosher kebab, because God alone is the divine being. From birth, a faithful Jew would have recite, recited the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Surely no other being shares the exclusive glory and power that is attributed to the one and only God. Now, John's not moving away from this truth. He's just echoed Genesis, remember? But he's revealing a greater depth to it. God is still one in his being, in his essence, and yet, there's plurality. John is being really precise with his language. We mentioned the New Testament's written in Greek, and in Greek there were different words for the word with. In English, we just have the word with. Uh, but actually, the term he's using it here, the with, it's, it's cross if you wanted to know. But, but you don't need to know that. Uh, essentially, it's, it's only used exclusively when talking of intimate personal relationship. The Word was with God. And unlike the Greeks who thought of this logos as some kind of pure reason or logic or archetype, John is revealing to us a personal intimate relationship. The Word was both eternally existing with God and yet the word was God. We just sang about that, right, didn't we? God of God and light of light. Very God, begotten, not created. Uh, the historic church confessions, these summary documents of, of Christian beliefs, use phrases like Jesus was true God from true God. And for good reason. Look at me at verse 3. He made everything. That's what it says, right? It says it positively and then negatively. Through him, all things were made, positive. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, negative, everything. He made it all, from uh, microscopic mitochondrial DNA uh, to the galactic glory of the Milky Way. He made uh, sharp sand and seaweed, but he also made the celestial planets. He made acorns and apples and apes, but he also made angels in the realms of glory. He made you, and he made me, he made all Things. Verse four says, in him was life, and this life was the light of all mankind. Um, over the past summer, I've listened extensively to a podcast, a new podcast series. It's called Zoe, Health and Nutrition, and it's amazing, I can highly recommend it. Uh, Zoe's uh, scientific research is combined with some of the latest wearable technology, not quite like the robotics that we looked at in our introduction, but Zoe have developed a, a genius app with some wearable technology to monitor in real time your blood fat, your blood pressure, and your glucose levels. And their highly personalized plan helps you track and analyze food intake and its effect on your gut. And their goal, essentially, is to pass on the latest in personalized science so that as a society we can live happier, healthier, and fuller lives. They are passionate about life. That's why they're called Zoe, because Zoe In Greek, means life. But for all the good that Zoe have done, and they will continue to do, life is not going to be enhanced to any meaningful degree until we recognize the source of life. Monitoring your blood fat and your intestinal microbiome, that's important. That can do you some good. But actually, knowing the source of life is of infinite importance. And that's what John wants his readers to know. Verse 4, in him was life, in him was Zoe, in him was life. In the same way that the mountain spring is the source to the river, in the same way that the the sun is the source of all of its beautiful rays, the source of life is him, is the sun, is the word. He's both the source of biological life, he's holding everything together by the power of his word right now, and he's also the source of eternal life. Life. And here's a question, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know this personal God? Are you in a relationship with him? Or are you, like so many others, scratching around in this life looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning in all kinds of other good but lesser things, whether it's health or work or relationships or finances or experiences or the list goes on and on and on. The Bible calls people that do that spiritually dead. You need life. You need to be connected to life's source. And if you want to find out more, there are three evenings in January where we're going to run through uh, something called Hope Explored. we we'll focus in a little bit of time in small groups looking at the theme of hope and peace and purpose as it pertains to Jesus Christ. Why not come along? Three evenings in January. Just three evenings. I don't know much about exchange rates, but you could potentially exchange three evenings in January for eternal life. To me, that seems like quite a good exchange. So come and connect corner if you want to find out more about how to do that. But for us, many of us here know him. We know the source of life. How can we get to know God and worship him and glory in him more? Well, in part, it's by meditating upon what he has done for us supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's our second point, the fleshness. Of the word. the word became flesh, verse 14. Now the title of this sermon is called The Glory of the Incarnation. Incarnation is a funny word, right? I don't know what it makes you think of. Carnation milk or uh, uh, chili con carne. That's kind of where the word comes from. Chili with flesh, with meat. Actually it comes from the, the Latin word carne to mean flesh. Incarnate means the infleshment. It's the infleshing of God. John could have written something like the word took on humanity. He assumed a human nature. Could have written that, but actually he didn't. And the contrast is jarring, right? The logos, the very God of the universe that we've just been glorying in, that we've just been reading about, the creator became flesh. Flimsy, frail, faltering Flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became truly human. He truly dwelt among us. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. As to his human nature, he shared uh, much of the historic hereditary of Mary as his mother. He became a, a zygote in scientific terms. He became a fetus. He then grew to a baby. He was born. He had to feed on his mother's breast, the mother that he made. The Bible tells us that he grew in stature and wisdom. He breathed with human lungs. He ate with a human mouth and a human stomach. He slept with a tired human body. He cried through human tear ducts. He experienced every sinless human emotion, from love to anger, from jealousy over God's holiness to joy and to sorrow. He knew exhaustion and slept. He knew physical and emotional pain. He was tempted yet without sin. He was beaten on his body and felt pain through his human nervous system. He was maligned. He was mocked. And he was really, truly, and completely human, just like you and me, yet without sin. Self-existence took on dependence. Absolute power assumed weakness. Eternal deity united himself with temporal humanity. My children sing this song, and it's a joy to hear it come from the lips of a three-year-old. Fully God, fully man. Jesus Christ, God's rescue plan. Not half God, not half man, not a mix. Not fully God, but not quite human. He's not God in a shell. But he's fully divine, fully human. Truly God and truly man in the one unique, glorious person, the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the reason for the season. Romans uh, chapter 9 verse 5 tells us that as to his human ancestry, the Messiah, he's connected to the Jews. He's the, uh, he's the seed of Abraham. He's the son of David. But he is God who is over all and forever praised. It's glorious, right? The glory of the incarnation. Uh, that word, uh, he, ma- he made his dwelling among us. Uh, in the original, that word means tent and it's echoing exodus in the old testament the tabernacle the tent is God's dwelling place the presence his presence among his people it was a picture of heaven meeting earth its interior implements pointed to human access with God and the high point of this tent the holiest place was was the ark and in the ark was the word of God and John's saying God's dwelling is not in a tent this time But it's in human form. The presence of God and now the means of access to God is now in human form. The enfleshment of God. H.B. Charles, a preacher, says this. The intersection of heaven and earth is now Jesus Christ. He is now the meeting place of time and eternity. I was thinking, how do we apply this? Because essentially what we're doing family, is we are scratching at a few snowflakes on the iceberg of this truth, trying to grapple with the two natures of Christ in one glorious person in one sermon. This is gonna require further meditation which will lead to deeper appreciation, never full comprehension, but brothers and sisters of the past have done excellent work uh, and brothers and sisters alive in the church today, in helping us try to summarize in some way and to reflect on the glory of this truth. So, here are four things that you could do as a believer to deepen your knowledge on the two natures of Christ and this one glorious person. Four things that you could read, and they're going to start from the shortest to the longest. And the longest is only half an hour. Number one, we have historic creeds in the church, which are summaries of truth. If you've never read a historic creed before, why not do that? One I would recommend on the two natures of Christ in one glorious person, uh, the Chalcedonian Creed. It'll probably take you a couple of minutes to read. Why not read a creed? Why not read a confession? Um, Articles 18 and 19 of the Belgic Confession talk about the incarnation and the two natures of Christ the two natures in one glorious person of Christ. Why not read that? That'll take you probably about five minutes to read. That's article 18 and 19 of the Belgic Confession. You could read an article that would take you about 20 some minutes to read by uh, uh, one of our uh, uh, a church, uh, a, a live church member, uh, a, a doctor of the church called Stephen Wellham, and he's written um, an article on the two natures of Christ and the incarnation. If you want any of these, I would happily send them through to you. There's a creed, there's a confession, there's an article by Stephen Wellham. And lastly, if you wanted to read a book or a chapter in a book, I've been supremely helped by Donald MacLeod's chapter uh, on the two natures of Christ in his book, The Person of Christ. The church family, the church of our history has has equipped us and wrestled over these things. Some people have died for these things. Um, We wanna, as followers of Christ, be reflecting, be meditating and be being equipped by these things here's the question, why? Why did God need to come and take on humanity? Was the incarnation actually necessary? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why did Christmas happen? Two reasons. Number one, revelation. God came to reveal God to us. The incarnation happened so that God would reveal himself to us. Look with me at verse 18 of John. Hopefully you've got your Bible still open. Verse 18 of John 1 says this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. How do we uh, find out about somebody? How do we learn about their character or their personality? Well, one thing that the person could tell you about themselves, that would be good. We could describe ourselves. Another way is that somebody close to them could tell you about them. And if that person is there, say their spouse or their brother or a long term friend, they will be able to reveal all kinds of intimate and personal aspects from the perspective of a lover. Jesus is God's glorious self disclosure. The end of uh, the, the, that verse 18 says, He has made him known. It means He has come to narrate, He has come to explain, He has come to reveal the Father. Jesus explains the Father to us. He explains God to us. How? Well, firstly, Jesus is the divine Son. It says this, doesn't it, in verse 18. He's the one and only Son in the closest relationship to the Father. And so from all eternity, He's been in holy and rapturous and eternal love. And He speaks as lover of the Father. He speaks as the beloved of the Father. And He speaks as God Himself. That's what it says in verse 18, doesn't it? It It says, "Um, Now, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God. And so he brings, as God, the perfect knowledge of God. Jesus reveals God as God, fully, to us. But Jesus comes, doesn't he, as the God-man. And so he communicates the divine being to us through his humanity. It's as if God gives, he gives God, Jesus gives God vocal cords so that our human eardrums can understand He needed to be fully God in order to reveal God, and he needed to be fully human to reveal God to us, human beings. And this is supremely practical. If you think that we're just in a world of thinking, we are in one sense, but it is supremely practical. When we look at Jesus, and when we hear him speak, we're hearing God. We're hearing the creator, we're hearing the sustainer of the universe. And so if you want to know how am, I, how am I to live, how am I to interact with, with, with women, we look at Jesus. How am I to interact with, with other men, we look at Jesus. How am I to interact with fellow believers or to treat the downcast or to treat repentant sinners or to treat unrepentant sinners or how am I to submit to my father or to my mother or how am I to submit even to sinful authorities like the government or how am I to live out God's priorities in my life, kingdom priorities, we look to Jesus Christ. He reveals and he lives out God's pattern for obedience, love and tenderness and sacrifice. The incarnation needed to happen to reveal God to us. The second reason the incarnation needed to happen, the reason for Christmas is to rescue us. The glory of God in Christ finds its climax, finds its zenith when Jesus is lifted up. Chapter 12 of of this gospel, you can read it later, chapter 12 of the gospel of John says this, Jesus said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. How? Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Human beings are infected. We have a mortal disease, and at times we're absolutely oblivious to it because it's so natural to us. And since the very first human beings in Genesis, we live and we move in patterns of brokenness and rebellion and contradiction and fears and jealousies and division and anger. And the Bible's summary for this is sin. And what we need, what every human being needs is a new Genesis. And that's what John's pointing us to. What we need is a new true human, someone to break the old habits, the old patterns. We need someone to pay for the mess to come and substitute himself for us. What we needed was true God to come and dwell and fellowship and unite himself with humanity, and what we needed was true man to come and to live and to love and to die in our place in the one glorious person, and that's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of John's gospel, the great revelation of God's love for his people is seen in Jesus Christ, the divine son, truly human, being lifted up on a cross to die in the place of sinful humans like me and like you the infinite God who took on finite flesh the source of eternal joy who would experience sorrow and terror of soul and affliction the God in whom is life who experienced death in his humanity the God who was light who experienced darkness and forsakenness becoming sin the scriptures tell us they crucified the Lord of glory 1 Corinthians 2.8 says. Hebrews 2.14 says this. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too shared in their humanity. Why? So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and to free those who are all their lives held by the slavery and the fear of death. He came to free us from the slavery and the tyranny of sin and of death through his resurrection. And again, this is practical to our worship how can I know you ask the question how can I know that God is for me when I feel vile and weak and sinful you look to Jesus God in the flesh how can I know how can I know for sure that God though God of the universe loves me and cares for me he came in the person of Jesus to die and to suffer in your place and to rise again so that the power of sin and death will be broken forever and so that he could usher you into eternal life with him that's how we can know Verse 12 of John 1 says this, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The incarnation, the reality that God, uh, Jesus Christ, is truly man and truly God, that he came in the flesh, was absolutely necessary to reveal God to us and to rescue us for God. At the end of that film, Ghost in a Shell, said that she was unique, one of a kind, But then it said, yet there will be more like her. That defies the idea of uniqueness, right? Jesus Christ was and is truly unique. There will be never another like him. There will never be God in the flesh taken on again. But the promise to all who bow the knee that submit to his beautiful and costly redemption is that one day we will share in a resurrection like his. Is that one day we will have gloriously perfected bodies, human bodies like his. That one day we will be able to enter into an unbroken and an unsullied and a pure and a matchless everlasting relationship with the God of unending splendor and glory because we are united to Jesus Christ. Until then we wait. He is utterly worthy of our worship and adoration, our meditation, our sacrifice and our honor and our praise and our blessing. And the question is, will you do that for him this week? Will you do that for him the rest of your life? If you do, you'll get to do it forever in endless bliss. eternal and unchanging God, we recognize that we have uh, but scratched the surface of your glorious plan of salvation for your people, uh, that you uh, would send your son, the second person of the holy and blessed triune God would come, uh, take to himself humanity, the greatest of humiliations, take to himself weakness and frailty in order to then suffer and be rejected and die and that in the place of sinners who deserve wrath. But we praise you for this incarnation. We praise you for death was not the end of him. Death could not hold him. Uh, That as now the risen and ascended Lord, uh, he is uh, our intercessor, he is our mediator, he is our savior and our king. And because of him, because of your wonderful plan of salvation, through faith we can now know you. And death and sin no longer has a hold on us. And we have the promise of eternal life. Lord God, it is all of you. Salvation is all of you. And so we give you all the praise, all the glory. And we ask and we pray that you would keep us until that day. Would you fill our hearts and our minds with with rapturous praise for what you've done for us? And Lord God, would you keep us from sin? And would you help us walk in in obedience? Keep clinging to our mediator. We know that you'll never let us go. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with our final song. You're the word of God the Father. So please do stand as the musicians lead us.